एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं There are maybe a handful of them who have come back to India after such a successful run in the valley to build startups that solve problems in India. And our guest today is one of those extremely rare entrepreneurs who built and exited a startup in the Silicon Valley, came back to India and became an integral part of the Aadhaar Card launch initiative. Then became a VC before taking another plunge into entrepreneurship with his fintech startup MoneyTap. which is among the leading b2c lending fintech platforms in the country listen to him narrate his amazing journey to akshay dat in this episode of the founder thesis podcast i grew up in chennai so um so i grew up and and, and did my college in the 1980s um 84 to 88 uh, at uh, at iit madras So I was born and brought up in Chennai and um, in Madras in those times, and uh, and studied in IIT Madras as well. Uh, Dad was a was a government servant, so he was a uh, the the central excise, and uh, so it was he was at a mid level uh, position, and uh, mom was a housewife. Were you a risk taker as a kid? Like you know, did that risk taking thing get? started as a child or like how did that come about that uh, you, you know that entrepreneurial bug um it, it's a it's a great question um and i've been sort of wondering about that uh, over over time um yeah as a child you know uh, it, it, growing up in the 70s and and 80s in um, you know in south india uh in a, in a in a sort of a tambram kind of a family which i was a part of uh, definitely risk taking was not uh, not in my blood uh and, and nobody i knew um other than one uncle of mine uh who who went around to start a business uh had ever taken any risk right so every so the mantra in those days was uh, and given the economy where which which india was at that time uh is was not exactly to start a business right so businessmen were like sort of this evil industrialist correct so that's the movies you watch are all like <laughs> you know amitabh bachchan like revolting or you know yeah. against yeah. sort of the rich class right it was a very yeah. socialist uh, you know that was the that was the that was what the stories we were told are hmm. Hmm. um so starting a business was a, a not possible and b was evil hmm. <laughs> so that was not even in the in my horizon hmm. so um i would say uh, the, the one interesting thread which might have started this which has been throughout with me from throughout my life uh, was that i definitely had an interest in travel hmm. okay so uh, when i was a child you know we pretty much got in south india chennai never you know never knew like life outside tamil nadu pretty much but um, but dad used to have this you know this uh, 
what they call ltc i think it's still there if you're a government yes, officer yes, like, yes, right, you're, right. you're allowed like one trip out so those days it was very really unusual to you know people usually use it for pilgrimage you know to go to some temple town or something but that took us to kashmir okay. um, and this is like you know way before the you know the whole insurrection started kashmir was beautiful but hmm. some of that i think was a spark in terms of saying hey you know uh you know the first time you go to you know delhi and you know go to kashmir and also yeah, like all okay. this mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know people speaking different language wearing different clothes it was really going to a different country honestly um a language which i did not understand a word of <laughs> so um so that that was a that was a very uh, eye opening uh, kind of a event um and that sort of triggered an interest in in travel so um later on when i got into iit uh, i still was not thinking entrepreneurship or anything but I was definitely very interested in sort of travel okay. um and the uh, one thing that also happened in iit was that somewhat accidentally um i got into a summer job um and uh, it was not done summer jobs were not done at that time right. side job never done but almost all through iit i had a side job and a summer job okay um and the job was nothing to do with the, what i studied but the job was um for doing market research somehow i accidentally got into this mm-hmm. where you was could, it to uh, earn pocket money like uh, it was basically only pocket money yeah okay uh, so i mean the college education was uh was was you know iit was somewhat subsidized right you know the fees were like 200 rupees a year hmm, so right. uh, but but that definitely did not have any money to for anything other than sort of basic hostel and and college fees which was the case with almost all my friends as well but um but the side job in market research which was very new at that time where you could go to you know tea shops and restaurants and ask them which you know brand of tea they used or you know okay. fmcg market research right door to door seeing what soaps you use you know stuff like that which very consumer market research um somehow i got into this and uh, i kind of liked the the money making aspect of it right so i got the taste of what is it to sort of make your own make some money on the side uh, as a college student you know you could always use for <laughs> uh use some extra cash right hmm. So uh, actually what happened with that is that it kind of uh it sort of started taking me places so, for, so from sort of door to door shop to shop it was very brutal you know imagine going to a tea shop and standing and asking that guy how many keys he sells right that is the kind of thing i used to do uh, as an iit student which was not exactly you know done uh <laughs> but then i kind of graduated from there to uh, do industrial surveys right where you would go to factories and ask how many bags of uh, cement they produced or you know strange places so that kind of got me into travel and i would travel you know across you know across south india all over the place hmm. places oh, wow. i didn't know right um, and and try, you know this is sort of pre internet pre telephone days right so you hmm. basically just go up uh, and of course you know having and the iit brand help so i would just say i am an iit student and i would basically go straight talk to the md of the, of the <laughs> wow okay but uh, so that obviously i used whatever i could um but it what it did do was a not only i made a lot more money but also got to travel uh to places which i would not normally go to uh, which you know was very unusual right because I, nobody knew where i was my parents didn't know where i was i would just take a suitcase and 
go to you know shimoga or some random places which yeah, no google maps no phone no google maps no i just ask people and i didn't yeah. speak the language whatever just sort of figure it yeah. out right yeah. so no advanced booking no google maps mm. right no train booking right there's no online booking you just show up at the railway station and take an unreserved train and go right i did a lot of that uh, almost every summer mm. okay um so that was kind of a one interesting phase uh, one thread uh, and uh, and later on you know uh, you know that kind of went and even now it continues and i'll talk about that in a little bit later um but a sense of sort of adventure and a sense of sort of curiosity and exploration um coupled with the also a thread of actually making money you know interest in you know uh, you know working and making some money was that was kind of exciting uh, thing to do on the side the, uh, the other not was, affect your grades and all like yeah i totally did so okay. <laughs> um yeah, i was not a good student particularly um and uh, and then, and partly also because i studied chemical engineering which was what i got into iit for uh, and i sucked at it so okay. uh, So I hated it first of all I didn't like it and mm-hmm. and then I was also not good at it why did so, you take it up because it was like the thing to do in those days in yeah IIT you had no choice uh, okay right? mm-hmm. so pretty much whatever your rank je rank was you got like you know mm-hmm. there's like a picking order mm-hmm. okay right? the top 100 people got into computer science and you know if your rank was 700 it would be something which my rank would did computer science exist as a field in 80s yeah Okay. Yeah. So computer science existed. It was just nascent. It was just coming up. So remember, I'm totally dating myself. So this is like before the age of PCs, right? So personal computer was invented in 1984, the year I joined IIT. Okay. Um, okay. So IIT did not did not have PCs when I entered IIT, mm-hmm. right? So we were all using mainframes. Oh wow. Um, okay. So uh, so that's why the second lucky thing happened to me was that again, this is pure luck. um that when i went to iit the 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 one of my seniors who was you know two doors away from me so he was in the final year i was in the first year um and he was very and he was a brilliant guy he was like the top of his batch and uh, for some reason he took a liking to me and he got me interested in in programming hmm. okay so 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 and i just love programming so the the minute i got to iit and i did my one my first semester i did a course in very basic programming some fortran or something but but i was just hooked on to programming it seemed like a little game to play so um while most of my friends were not interested in programming or programming was just too new unless you are a computer science graduate it was not particularly a cool thing to do right right um, right the electronics was a probably maybe a little bit more cool to do than software programming mm-hmm. plus it was very hard to do right you had to do mainframes and punch cards and so it was really like very crude and very very crude and very very difficult to do right that you would you know you would do your punch card feed it to a mainframe and then 6 hours later you'll get like error in your whatever you know wow okay right. so it was very painful to do um in retrospect of course at that time i didn't know anything different um but almost all through my four years of college um i was programming so about 2 3 years in we got some basic pc some very crude machines mm-hmm. um but but somehow i knew that i mean it was very clear to me that i knew that I, i'm not going to do chemical engineering and i'm going to do computer programming right that was my so that was also clear 
and and these two threads are very clear that i wanted to i love traveling and wanted to see places and i like programming right so, so when i exited iit uh in 88 um it, it was very clear to me that i'm going to switch to programming so i never even applied for a chemical engineering job um i got a couple of campus placements for programming okay right? um and uh, but then i had an opportunity to go abroad hmm. um for for further studies hmm. uh, and it was very clear to me i wanted to get a degree in programming so um so i applied i went to university of southern california first um i i, I couldn't get into any computer master's degree um from undergrad and also i didn't have any scholarship or any way to fund it so basically um i went i got a, a scholarship in in chemical engineering so um i don't know why but i got it okay. <laughs> so i went there, but yeah. um, but it was very clear that even in the first semester that i'm going to change right so literally i went for to usc and shifted one semester later right my professors were pissed off right because they expected me to finish the degree but i was very clear right i'm, I'm going abroad to switch and, and the first person they continued to give me the scholarship like uh, that was not a problem only for the first semester i switched to a different college oh okay okay right i changed universities um I, and basically the the first university that would offer me a scholarship i was going to switch hmm. okay okay right um and i think i got one or maybe two offers i don't remember but uh this was another piece of luck that i ended up in the northern california i ended up in the bay area wow okay right? my university was uh, university of california in santa cruz just in the bay area um and uh, so i was very interested in computer programming and you know that was it right mm-hmm. and traveling mm-hmm. now was um, it like a silicon valley thing at that time um right. not yet okay right mm-hmm. so this is again pre internet i'm talking about right so there was no internet right there were basic i mean obviously computers were there but mostly like you know uh, heavy duty machines and so but but silicon valley was there right so it was it was um anyway so went to grad school um, but at grad school uh, already the the, uh, the entrepreneurship was very much a real thing at that time right because of silicon valley right so because it was silicon valley there were some startups right apple had you know was a very successful company right so there was some the notion of startups were there software right microsoft it was very successful right so there were startups successful entrepreneurs that thing was already there um and uh, and a few of uh, and and a few of my friends in the grad school uh, they wanted to start a company and that was essentially became my first startup okay yeah okay so so we started a company uh, right out of grad school so uh, like how were you uh, so you got a scholarship which would have paid for uh, your university fees but how were you sustaining yourself because your parents would not have been able to send you money to survive yeah 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 parents had zero money they didn't even have money to send me to buy a ticket one way ticket so i had to take <laughs> a loan to buy a one way ticket wow to, to okay US. okay from your relatives uh from a bank oh okay <laughs> okay like was it easy to get a loan like that or like you no. settled so I, had, i had to pledge my house or something 
ஒரு <laughs> So when I finished uh, grad school I didn't I didn't have a green card or anything so I I couldn't do a startup do my startup on the side so we kept the startup on the side and I joined a job but the job was also in a startup right okay. so it was a startup company um and uh, it was a good job uh, and luckily for me the company went public in 2 years oh wow which company was this um it was a company called at that time was called digital link it was a networking company okay uh, i was doing software there and um, and so so this was like 1993 by the time i i got uh, i got my green card luckily in 2 years okay. and the company went public in 2 years mm-hmm. right so i was doing my startup on the side um um and and then this company went public right? so um so that obviously gave me yeah i got my green card so i could you know i was free right to mm-hmm. I, i didn't need to be tied to a job right so i quit the startup immediately um it took did like a three month i mean did you get esops and all uh, like did you yes okay. yes yeah okay. so that obviously immediately put me in a good financial situation mm-hmm. right that that became like the seed capital which you could kind of draw on effectively right at, uh, at least uh, yeah so um and uh, uh and definitely i could fund myself so i when i sold that company i i took 3 months off um and again sort of back to the travel theme so i went to south america for some reason i had a fascination for for travel especially in latin america even This now is the, after the digital link ipo you yeah after the digital link ipo mm. i got my green card mm. took 3 months off mm. right um and my startup was still going on my partners were doing the work mm. um i decided that i need to take some time off mm-hmm. so um i took 3 months off um uh some of it friends some of it solo i did all kinds of stuff you know hiked in the andes and you know went to brazil i learned uh, i learned spanish in the meanwhile so so you know now i speak spanish pretty pretty fluently wow. um so i went to brazil i went everywhere you know chile in argentina no, i mean sorry uh, uh, peru and or much which all kinds of places you know which in those days were were still pretty exotic you know nobody would travel there um so this was like 3 months off um which is good you know when you're traveling by yourself you know you really learn a lot and hmm. you know how to take care of yourself again remember pre internet so it was not like you could yeah, you know yeah. booking booking.com and airbnb and stuff like that right there was right. nothing right no phone yeah. you just by yourself yeah. um and um, and that was um saying anyway, i came back and did my first startup uh so to fast forward a little bit we sold that startup So tell me about uh, the startup like what was the idea that you were uh, executing in that like and, and sure. um, did it stay the same or did you pivot and like we pivoted a lot um and um, we went from um we went from you know we wanted to do a medical software originally uh, because we knew a doctor he had some he he wanted a software for for his clinic something like um, that 
something like Practo, yeah. Like, you know, like a very crude version of pre-internet Practo. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but at that time, it was just too complicated. Uh, so we changed completely and we, we, we went into uh, basically software protection, anti-piracy software. Okay. Um, and that's what we did. So that company was reasonably successful. We grew it. Um, we went through a couple of acquisitions and we ended up selling the company to a, to a public company called Rainbow Technologies. Okay. Um, so that was a good exit for all of us. Um, and this after, was bootstrap. I joined okay. full-time in 93, took about four years, three, okay. four years. Okay. Okay. And this was bootstrapped? This was bootstrapped. Totally okay. bootstrapped. Okay. So, so that must have been a pretty good exit. Uh... Like that was a very good exit. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the first one was a was a was a ESOP, right? Employee ESOP. The second early employee. I was one of the early people at Digital Link. Uh, the second one was a was a simple uh, was an was an acquisition. Um, and uh, so again, in the, in the in the meantime, I had again done a lot of travel. I went to Africa. This that. So somehow I got fascinated by Africa. Okay. Um, this time <laughs> so after we sold the second company I, I took a year off um and um and this was in 97 okay were you married and, by the uh, not yet okay um sure i'm coming to that <laughs> um okay. so um i took a year off and um uh, i had this whole thing of going all the way from uh so I started in Turkey, went all through the Middle East. Okay. Um, you know, this is, uh, again, it was safe to travel in those days and everywhere, you know, Israel, Egypt, Jerusalem, everywhere. Hmm. Um, and then my idea was that I wanted to hitchhike across the Sahara. That was my objective. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, which even in those days was very, very hard thing to do, even hmm. without you know, pre-terrorism, pre-everything was a very hard thing to do. Right. Hmm. Um so anyway, and, uh, internet had internet had come on by this time, and uh, um, and uh, I had posted on some news groups saying this is what I wanted to do, um, and uh, one Dutch guy replied saying that hey, you know, by the way, you can't really do hitchhike and all, but because there are you know there's no traffic there in that route, mm-hmm. and it's a desert, you can't you know stand in the middle of the desert and put your thumb out. <laughs> um, but he said, look, you know, a few of us are, have the same idea. So we're planning to buy like two or three SUVs um, in Holland. And uh, we're planning to drive across, right? And then sell the SUVs in, in when we reach across the Sahara in a, in, a, in, a, in a country called Senegal. Okay. Right. So we're going to plan to sell to Senegal. Um, but um, but you need to speak the language, so you have to learn French. So which I ended up learning. So I, I, I learned French wow. uh, before I travel. There's zero English there. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, why don't you? Uh, but why don't you? Why don't you join us? So I said, cool. Why not? You know, that sounds like a good idea. Um, so I have like a year. So it's not like I was in a hurry to do anything. So. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. So it was me, five Dutch guys, and this another woman um, who was also European, but she'd been living in South Africa, right? Uh, her name was Dana. Uh, his name was Rudy. There were six of us. So anyway, seven of us started in Amsterdam uh, on a cold, rainy uh, <laughs> January <laughs> morning. 
Mm. And pretty much we drove all the way from Amsterdam through Europe mm. uh, into Morocco. Mm. Um, it was an interesting trip. Uh, obviously, we were camping and right, six weeks of, you know, six, seven, you know, six, six or eight weeks, I don't remember, of sort of being in the desert, right? So it's right. like a, you're camping, you're cooking, etc. Um, but probably the most interesting thing that happened, even more than crossing the desert, was that um, Dana and I ended up falling in love and... Uh, We've been married for 20 years now. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay. <laughs> That's some story, huh? To, I mean, when people ask you how you met. <laughs> yes. I usually, uh, yeah. So, don't like telling the story because, you know, after I tell the story, then, you know, the other stories kind of, <laughs> other people don't like to tell their stories. <laughs> um, okay. But, but it, was, it was quite an interesting story, obviously, you know, with all kinds of adventures in the middle um but then after we met in thing i then i i wanted to travel alone not even with her so uh, I, i spent another two three months alone in west africa which is one of the roughest places in the world to travel uh it's hot it's it's poor you know it's crazy west um, africa includes which countries like senegal mali okay. um gambia you know burkina faso i mean countries which are not like touristy countries right so this is not like kenya which Uh, which I had been to before. That's what kind of gave me the taste of. So I'd been to Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and all those kind of places, which is somewhat touristy. This is like, there's no tourism. This is like just, you know. Poverty. You, yeah, you're going like the middle of Bihar. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're traveling by yourself. By, by solo, right? Mm-hmm. Carrying all cash. There's no credit card. There's no, nothing works. Right, okay. Uh, right. So Was I, I know like, like, you Did you feel threatened ever during that trip? Never, never. Never, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was really alone and, you know, you're like sleeping in railway stations. It was like really rough, right, mm. travel. Like, mm. You're you know, in the middle of like nowhere. Yeah, um, right. right? And, and, and only French, right? There's no English, nothing, right? No language. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting, uh, um, obviously. So, so by this time, obviously, my profile of taking risk was like very, very high. Like, like, okay, let's go, you know, jumping, let's jump, right? It was, it was kind of like that. Yeah, like, so, I mean, when you can play with your life, then playing with career, playing with money, exactly. all is fairly secondary. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, and uh, that, so then I came back to the Valley a year later, 98. Uh, and I did my, uh, probably what is my second own startup and the third startup, you know, if you include the... So one, one question about Africa, like, was there like some sort of uh, self-discovery, some insight, something which happened during that Africa trip? Um, there was, there was several um, in the sense that um, it's... Um, You know, when you're by yourself, you know, for a long time and and you're dealing with like all kinds of unknowns, right? So you're pretty much sort of very much like into like, let's deal with it, right? And I, I can deal with anything kind of. It was a little bit of that. Right? Along the lines of what you said, you know, just, if I can take this, I can deal with anything. Okay. okay. And also somewhat, somewhat take life as it goes, right? It was a very dramatic set of events 
Uh, I'm skipping a few events that happened also in the middle, but all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Like what? Right? You yeah. stay by yourself in the desert, you know, all kinds of shit happens. Hmm. So, so the so you're very much you know resilient in some ways. I mean, the, I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing now, obviously. You know, hmm. twenty. Years. What were some of the yes, things that happened? Like, oh, all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, you know, things would break down, right? I mean, I would be stuck in like a very remote place, right? Uh, like, you know, like for example, uh, you know, I was like kind of, I was alone. I was in a very small village. I mean, think of some tiniest village you can think of, right? And I had to go and cross the border of a country. I don't remember which one anymore. So I'm going from one country to another, but basically one village on this side to another village on the other side. And the distance is not much. It was like some, you know, 30 kilometers or something. But I can't walk it. So I had to like sort of travel. And there are no buses or anything. But they had these sort of, you know, what we also have in India, right? This little pickup trucks kind of thing, right? If you go to real small places, they be like, there won't be buses, but there'll be a pickup truck. Uh, like a Mahindra. Uh, Mahindra type of thing. Uh, uh, and, and the way it would work is basically they would, when they fill up, they go. Hmm. Okay. Right? Uh, uh. So, um, so I, so I would, I was waiting. For example, you know, then there's no timing, right? You show up in a tea shop at eight o'clock and you sit and wait, hmm. right? Hmm. Hmm. And people start showing up. So I remember one thing where I was like sitting at eight o'clock and I was waiting and waiting. I wanted to go to the other place by by evening, by afternoon, ideally, right? It was only thirty kilometers, but after like, you know, three hours, right? There are like three people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy is like, I'm not leaving until there are like at least ten people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, guys, you know, it's not gonna happen, right? Yeah. Like, why don't we all pitch in and pay for like the ten? Yeah. And everybody was like shocked. I mean, obviously the amount is very tiny amount, right? We're talking about some pickings. And I had sold the company, so I had the money, but obviously these guys had like no money. And I also didn't want to like open up my wall of cash and you know, that would be not like a good thing to do. Anyway, at one o'clock, you know. There's nobody showing up, and all these guys are lighting fires and like planning to settle down for the night. And, <laughs> and guys, like, what are you doing? You know, let's, let's go. So finally, you know, four people are there. Anyway, and I end up personally paying for everybody. So, anyway, in the middle, I'm like, like you know, I'm I'm like, okay, well, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to walk, right? I'm going to, and everybody's like, that's stupid. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. So I like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to walk. So I start walking. You know, after a few kilometers, obviously, it's like a desert. I'm like, okay, that's like a dumb thing to do. I'm like, yeah, I told you. <laughs> so, anyway, a few hours of this, and I sort of pay the remaining fare for everybody else. I said, I'll pay. So they're all like shocked. They're saying, what are you doing? You know, you're like crazy. You should not be doing this. And I said, we have to go, right? Go across the border. So anyway, we go to the border. And the border, that guy is like, who are you? Because I have an Indian passport. And they've never seen an Indian passport. I mean, it's not like a, you know, passport or something. <laughs> anyway, all kinds of crazy stuff. So we cross the border. We go to the other side. And and and, and obviously, the other side, there's nobody else either. It's the same crowd that has to go to the other village. <laughs> and they are like, okay, there's nobody who's going to come. So let's just stay here for the night. I'm like, are you crazy? No, we can't stay here. There's like nothing. Right? I have like nothing to sleep on. And. Like we're in the middle of like nowhere. Another like long argument. Anyway, so you know, the same same argument, same people. I'm like, guys, 
this time why don't you pay because there's nothing is going to happen we're we're here and they're like that's okay now what's the big deal in life right like what's the hurry they're all don't understand like why you are going to that village because there's nothing in that village right it's not like you know you're going to see niagara falls or something on the other side right you're just like going there right, right? so <laughs> so anyway so i mean you, you you know you get like a number of crazy things like this um right where you're dealing with situations uh but i mean if you view it like a, as a sense of adventure then it's an adventure hmm. right if you you like man i have to go somewhere then it's like a you know massive annoyance mm-hmm. right okay. or so like that, a that perspective happened. shift happened of right. exactly not focusing on the destination but the journey that's right, that's right. exactly i mean literally yeah. in this case hmm. so i mean in you know and the whole of west africa is kind of like that because there is no destination right the, you know even 20 years later if someone people ask me where should i go right you know in that place tell me like a spot right there is no spot i mean i can maybe timbuktu is one place but there is no other place i can tell you right, right. which is mm-hmm. like beautiful or you know there is like a mountain or a waterfall or market anything it was, i mean there are a lot of markets and stuff but it was all right it's just it's just there right it was like a journey was really a journey where with there's, there's no particular destination but the experience is the is the effect anyway um a little bit like that so anyway i came back to the us um and uh, this was 98 um and uh, so by 98 of course you know the startup boom was full steam in in the valley right right the dot com it was a dot com sort of era um and um so obviously i wanted to roll the dice and start a company hmm. um but i didn't have an idea in mind right um and there were sort of lots of sort of groups of people without any idea like wanting to start companies right i just want to start a company kind of thing so there was one such group uh, which is basically one of my most close friend and another couple of guys um and uh, and we said okay let's let's brainstorm ideas right so let's just we'll sit in a coffee shop and you know like you know why don't we sell fridge doors you know why don't we sell like whiteboards online everything was online right we like right right e-commerce uh, yeah it was e-commerce of some sort mm-hmm. right like waterbottles.com you know people are already selling socks so that idea was taken uh, you know you could you know sell puppets you know just literally like, think of something and then .com right you immediately go and search for the domain and um so obviously most of the ideas were like really stupid um but what happened i think after a few months of this was that uh, the pressure of wanting to start a company became too much right because fairly smart guys two guy two other so i was from iit two other guys from iit uh one guy had gone to iit went to harvard right mba from mckinsey uh, and these guys are all the three of them had also sold a company just like i had done okay so they were all like second time entrepreneurs you know you know fairly you know loaded from that financial standpoint hmm. right very hmm. pedigreed right so we could all attract right you know we could walk into vc's offices also hmm. right okay but we didn't have an idea hmm. <laughs> so um so anyway six months later 
uh, we kind of a lot of this, there's a lot of pressure to start a company. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, like you can only bring some like so many ideas. Like, let's start something. You know, like that. Um, so we finally came up with an idea, um, which was um, the company was called I we, I Select. Okay, I Select was the name of the company. Uh, and the idea was uh, essentially what is now like Urban Clap in India. Okay. okay. Right. That was the basic idea. But this is all in the US, more Silicon Valley. So um, anyway, um, so long story short, uh, we did some seed funding, but we shut down the company in about six months. Why was that? Yeah. So um, there are a lot of reasons. Um, so the idea itself was probably way ahead of its times mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of sort of holes in the idea. Again, I'm giving you sort of a retrospect kind of story. Mm-hmm. But the bigger problem was that we couldn't get along as a team. Right? It was a little bit of an arranged marriage. Right? We had, we, had, we had some friends, but I was not really close to all of them. I knew, knew only one of them really well. And um, there's a combination of the idea not like catching on fire and the fact that, you know, we couldn't get along as a team. Yeah. So it was pretty much a total disaster. So all the seed funding was, was gone. Um, and we had to shut the company down, right? Because we couldn't work together. Hmm. Okay. And, and uh, in my book, uh, that's kind of one of the worst ways to waste your investor money. And as an investor later on, uh, I'm like super sensitive to that point, right? One thing, you know, you tried and you failed, right? Business did not take off. Customers did not like your product. There are a lot of reasons to to fail, which are in my mind, quote unquote, legitimate, right? But what is not cool is, to, is, to, is, is that you guys can't get along and you didn't know that before. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And you discover it like six months later. Was it like uh, no shared vision? Everyone had a different vision for what to do, or was it like yeah, different vision? No, like like a CEO designate who could pull everyone together. There was a CEO designate, but Hmm. we couldn't. We didn't like him. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that was the problem. Otherwise, I think we could have probably managed. Okay, Um, and uh, it was just like a bad dynamic, Hmm. right? Too much testosterone. Uh-huh. And this is going to work became like toxic. Yeah, okay. Okay. So um so basically, you know, just it, it could like you know, it's your company, but you just don't feel like going to work. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And by the time we had to hire a team, there were like some 50, 30, 30 or 40, I don't remember how many people, but mm-hmm. 30 plus mm-hmm. people for sure, probably 50 people. Right. Mm-hmm. So like who all believed in our like vision that we sold them. Hmm, um, right. and we couldn't get along even as we were hiring we, could, we knew we couldn't get along with each other right um, and again I'm, I'm not blaming one person on this it's probably you know I was also somewhat immature uh, in all of this but uh, but huge learning obviously is not to do that again ever right. um, so that was like a really bad experience but uh, in some sense, it was good that I, and one of the best decisions I probably made was to shut down the company or want to shut down the company. 
right? Because uh, to stick around and do that for years would have been like a personal disaster and a, probably a professional disaster as well. Hmm. Right, right. Right. So, um, so the right thing to do was to actually shut that company down, which is what we did. Um, and uh, in the meanwhile, there was another group, which I was telling uh, groups of people ideating. Uh, another group of people actually had an idea, um, which seemed much more interesting and, and a very close friend of mine uh, from IIT. He was one of them and the couple other guys. So they had been ideating on an, uh, they also, you know, didn't have like a, like a preset passion, right? But they also wanted to start a company. Um, all the three of them had gone to Harvard. Um, and my friend uh, has been, went to IIT and went to Stanford and went to Harvard. Um, so my friend's name was Shripati, Shripati Acharya. And, um, and uh, I liked the guys, right? I liked all of them. Um, and I had just come from experience of like having bad founders. So um, I really liked them. Um, and I broadly liked the idea. I did not do too much research on it. But I say, you know what? Let's let's do this company. Okay. So this bad company experience lasted maybe a year uh, until I joined. Uh, we started this company, hmm. which was Snapfish. So, yeah. So this company obviously is a huge success. You've heard of Snapfish, right? Um, and uh, so there were four of us founders, um, and uh, I, I just got in. I mean, they had come up with the basic idea, and I just came in, right? That so. Moving to office, San Francisco, um, and this was like a real dot com, right? So we raised like some forty million dollars, hmm. 30, 30, 40, 30 or forty million dollars on a PowerPoint. Hmm. Uh, what was the uh, original idea of Snapfish that you had in your deck, based on which you raised the funds? Sure. So the the pitch deck basically opened with saying "Kill Kodak." That was our opening line. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you were very really cocky. Uh, uh, you know, Silicon Valley type of people. Um, the idea, uh, so this is the digital cameras had not yet come. Yeah, there was internet, but no digital cameras. Um, it was the first cameras just started to come out, and the camera was like three thousand dollars, right? So Kodak was like the 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 king. Kodak had been around for like what a hundred and fifty years, hundred hundred plus years, right? Kodak basically what does what it does is Kodak sells film. Kodak sells film cameras. Kodak sells the chemicals to process the film and then the paper to process the chemicals. <laughs> and you get prints, right? In photo stores and retail stores and so on and so forth. And and uh, you know, repeat, right? So you can more take more photos. So they were like photos means Kodak, right? The Kodak moment. Right? Right. They were like a yeah. yeah. They were like a company, iconic company, Eastman Kodak. Uh, but what had just happened was that uh, digital cameras were just starting to come in, but it was still a very much a toy, right? It was very high-end. Uh, the quality was very poor, right? The best camera you could get was like one megapixel. Wow, okay. Um, for like $3,000, some ex- absurdly expensive camera. Uh, but and the industry was kind of talking about it. Hey, you know, digital cameras. But obviously, nobody took it seriously. Hmm. The way um, people are talking about self-driving cars today, in a way. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. It was very much like self-driving cars now. Right? Like exotic, you know, yeah, someday it sounds like it should happen logically, but right, 
and like you know who knows like there'll be other issues you know memory you know this that everybody had like questions uh so but that but because it was a dot com boom there were already like 120 startups which were all taking photos from the digital camera and uploading it right so even this few hobby people who bought the digital camera right so they would take the photos and these guys would upload the photos right and then you can share it and so on and so forth so our idea was hey you know eventually digital camera might happen but today people have film cameras hmm. so why don't we take people's film rolls digitize them like scan the the hmm. film hmm. 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 and then put it on the internet right and then they can share them and you know they can still use photos or print or whatever but but we're kind of we're bringing them digital hmm. okay that was our our angle to this uh and uh, in in as we did the research we realized that the people who actually take photos uh in america were women okay yeah and not only women but mothers okay for the kids right? so pretty much young mothers are the ones who take photos right i mean there's also other categories like travelers and so on and so forth but the ones who took the most number of photos because travel you do once a year or something right vacation but the ones who take in terms of volume of photos taken is the young mothers so we decided that the the target audience was young mom the business idea was to let them take you know photos on film and then we would digitize it and put it back on the on the internet from where they right? could download it and Share and then they could download it, but we'd also send them the rolls, the film back, and the prints, so they have a copy of that. And then they could share it. So this was basically the core of the idea. Um, now the ironic thing, of course, was that there are four sort of Indian guys, right? <laughs> two of them <laughs> from India, uh, and two other who are like Indian Americans. Uh, and our target audience was like some, you know. white mom yeah right and we were single at that time as well most of us are just married or something so we had like no idea what this mom wants but but the business was very clear it was not about us right? because we were all sort of business guys especially three guys with an mba they were very clear like hmm. we're not the customer the customer is somebody else right we're not designing something that we would use we're designing somebody else somebody else will use so again uh, fast forward a little bit lot of stuff happened hmm. um but obviously the film cameras died much faster than we thought so 1998 you know there were hardly anybody with film cameras by 2001 everybody was using digital cameras right because electronics really you know brought the price down dramatically it was still expensive it was still like 1500 dollars for a 2 2 megapixel camera but digital cameras sort of started taking off right uh because the you know china was manufacturing it and you know those is it was just an electronic manufacturing problem right right hmm. right um, um but we were one so the, then the dot com crash happened so anyway a lot of stuff happened obviously in 2000 in 2001 right when we launched the product right, uh, you know personally for me i had twin babies right? okay so you married it was like Dana, 10 right, days right. i married dana we had like twin daughters right right in the middle of my startup um okay. super successful um okay. and then 911 happened right 911 nearly killed our business because 
you know, we were still film based at that point. And all the roles of film was coming from a factory. You know, the scanning was done at a factory in, in Washington, D.C. And there was this anthrax scare where basically they wanted to put all these X-ray machines in all the... So that somebody was shipping anthrax. It's like a poison. Uh, and and the government wanted to basically... This is immediately after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Right? So like a little mini scare yeah. that somebody was you know, mailing poison. Uh, and, and and so the U.S. Postal Service wanted to like put X-ray machines on all the thing, which should have basically killed our business. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, the X-ray would have spoiled the negatives. Exactly. Mm, okay. So anyway, there were lots of things like this. Um, but 9/11 itself, you know, all the dot-com bust happened, right? All the but luckily we had raised the money before, right? So almost all our competitors went out of business. Okay. Because they were too reliant on digital cameras, which had not yet taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we were just, because we were using film and we kind of survived, um, we were able to sort of survive to tell the story. Uh, and then when the digital cameras took off, right, we kind of morphed the business into a digital printing business. Right? Basically, you would upload your pictures and take prints. Okay. Hmm. So 20 years later, uh, so in, in 2005, we got bought by Hewlett Packard. Uh, so for about $300 million. And... Uh, in the middle, um, yeah, and then we started also powering, white labeling our site to Walmart, for example. Okay. So even today, Walmart Photos is powered by Snapfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walgreens is powered by Snapfish. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and in addition to our own business, so Snapfish.com, you can go check out Snapfish.com. It's one of the mm-hmm. very few websites that was started in the year 2000 mm-hmm. that yes, you can still type in. Mm-hmm. and then you'll see a website right almost no brand existed no brand continued mm-hmm. companies did not continue mm-hmm. right 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 most of the companies died mm-hmm. so it's one of the you know i'm super proud of the fact that i started a company and 20 years later i can tell you to go to a website mm-hmm. right yeah yeah right mm-hmm. but it's still doing it snapfish is still a very big big business mm-hmm. um it's a little bit of a niche play now right mm-hmm. um but you can go to snapfish.com. Mm. Um, Why the decision to sell to HP? They offered us a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like, <laughs> what were the dynamics around that? Like, if you like uh, ha- thought that this can become like a billion dollar unicorn or something, you may have felt that this was not enough money or yeah. you know, like, like what was the... You were not sure. You were not sure that um, it would become a billion dollar unicorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mainly because we were not sure if people would print forever. Okay. Hmm. So we didn't know what the behavior would be. Right? And, 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 and so it happened that the people stopped printing so much. They do other things. It's still a good business. It's a little bit of a niche business. Hmm. Okay. HP, which was the one big in printing, came and offered, made a good offer. Right. right and we right. thought it was mm-hmm. Yeah, for HP, it fit into their product line. Uh, exactly. Hmm. Okay, got it. So, um, so we started essentially launched the company in April two thousand. Right, started in ninety nine. Right. Um, so I stayed on, um, and and my personal career had a big switch when HP bought us. So I used to be a techie. I was, you know, I was, remember I was a programmer and all of that, uh, and I was a CTO until HP bought us. Okay. Um, and then I switched and I decided I want to do do a, be a business guy. 
So I personally went and started Snapfish in Australia. Um, then in a number of countries in Europe, we did an acquisition in Europe. Hmm. Okay. So at one point, I was managing Snapfish International in about 20 countries. Okay. 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 Yeah. I'd launched like multiple countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it sort of goes a little bit with my personal passion of traveling. Uh, my wife is like an even bigger traveler than I am. Okay. Um, so, so there's like always that thread of adventure going into the unknown, mm-hmm. right? And my wife and I would take kids and drag our kids everywhere, you know, from Cuba to, you know, all kinds of crazy places in Africa and everywhere, right? So even though we had like newborn kids and, you know, young, you know, didn't matter, even though I was running a startup. So it kind of was a very big part of life. Um, as I go along, right? I have also got interested in other passions, like I started getting into trekking, I do a lot of scuba diving at that time. Okay. So a fair amount of that kind of skiing, I still I still ski a lot, mm-hmm. right? So a fair amount of other kind of interests, which in sort of outdoors, besides just, you know, doing a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But all of those are kind of, you know, intertwined in some ways in the sense of taking risks, going out there and putting yourself out there a little bit. Right. right. Um, mm-hmm. In um, 2007, uh, I was running an international business. The travel was getting hard. And, and by this time, I lived in the U.S. for 17 years. Uh, my wife is European, so she had been there only for like seven years. Um, and um, uh, and my dad just passed away um, a year back to do brain. He had a brain tumor uh, in 2006. And in 2007, we decided, hey, why not uh, move to India for a couple of years? So obviously, you know, our kids were six years old. Um, you know, I had all my friends and my life was obviously in the U.S., right? I mean, I had some family here. My my mother was here, but um, but my mother was alone. I thought, okay, Chalo, you know, maybe it's a good time to spend a couple of years in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and that's what we did. Didn't you feel uh, it would be a compromise for your kids? I mean, growing up in U.S. versus growing up in India. Yeah, so when we came, first we thought we'll stay for a couple of years. Uh, right? We thought, okay, Chalo, it's like they're young enough that it'll be a little bit of an adventure for them. Um, so we moved to Bangalore in 2007. Um, and um, and it was very complicated because my wife is no, not Indian. Uh, and, and, and obviously, I never lived in Bangalore. I'd been to Bangalore a couple of times, but never lived. I'm not a Bangalorean. Right, right. Hmm. Um, but, um, and there was really no particular reason for me to be in Bangalore in the sense that, you know, HP, uh, by the time we were part of HP, HP didn't care, you know, where you want to be. So this, they were just kind of humoring me. They said, all right, Chalo, if you want to be in Bangalore, be in, you can be in Singapore, you can be in Bangalore. It's not like they wanted me to go. Right. So we just thought it'll be a little bit of an adventure, Chalo, why not try something? Like we lived in the valley, you know, I knew how Silicon Valley was like. And so my friends all thought, and still think that I'll, you know, I'll be back in a couple of years. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So, uh, anyway, um, long story short, obviously two years uh, has become, you know, probably going to come to 20 years. Hmm. Um, so it's not, it's about 15, 12, 14 years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and. Uh, was know, it hard to kind of uh, settle into India after seeing the best in class uh, lifestyle so to say 
Yeah. So look, we lived in Bangalore, you know, in gated communities. It was, it was not that hard from that point of view. Right. Right. Um, and professionally, I was still mostly running a global business. So I didn't have to interact too much with, you know, uh, getting my hands dirty, local scene, and so much. Hmm. So the first couple of years was like a really honeymoon in some ways. Uh, but what really clinched it for us was the kids really loved it. Okay. Right? Okay. The kids loved the school. Uh, we made some good friends. Uh, and uh, in 2009, late 2009, um, I had the good fortune of meeting Nandan, hmm. uh, Nandan Nilakani. I've been in, at, at, at Snapfish for 10 years now and uh, I built the business and the business was doing very well, right? We were doing about a billion dollars in GTV and about, uh, you know, everybody was happy. It was a good situation. It was growing like crazy. Uh, we had launched in 20 countries. So it was kind of like a good time. Um, but um, but uh, Nandan, so somebody had, through the Bangalore connection had told me that Nandan Nilakani is launching this biometric ID program, right? Manmohan Singh had just given him a cabinet position. Right. To go do something with a biometric ID. But it was very vague. Literally, that was the mandate. That's it. Right. Biometric ID. Hmm. Um, now, uh, Nandan being who he is, you know, super charismatic, uh, he got together a bunch of very, very bright people, hmm. um, including people like Pramod Verma, who was the chief technology officer of pretty much iSpirit, you know, of, of, uh, of UPI, right? He, he okay. built the PST network. Okay. Um, Shrikan Nadmuni was amazing guy. So a number of like really bright people, hmm. um, what, what, five, 10 people, um, and he had already gotten, which I didn't, I didn't know at that time. I knew them a little bit later, but I went to his uh, house to say, Hey, you know, I've been back. I've been, I mean, I've done all of this. Like, you know, what should I do in lifetimes? Okay. So I walked out of his house with a resignation letter to HP in hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So he convinced me that like, I should not be like wasting my life and I should like do something for the country. So, um, so I quit HP, which was crazy, you know, like a seven-figure salary and, you know, all kinds of perks and mm. obviously in a you know, growing business uh, to join Aadhaar. Aadhaar was really a startup in, in every sense of the word. We didn't even have an office, right? So okay. uh, Shrikanth had, had rented an apartment in, in Bangalore. Uh, and, you know, the uh, but, uh, but it was a bunch of amazing people, including... Uh, Mr. You know R.S. Sharma, who is like chairman of Try right now, okay. uh, book on this on this topic. You know, I met him on his first day. Like he walked into an apartment, thinking like, "What is going on here?" It's <laughs> like we're running a government. It's supposed to be a government program, and you guys are like, "What are you doing?" Right. Uh, very Delhi, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of very very bright officers from Delhi and a bunch of bright people from Bangalore. Right, it was like a you know, but in you know, it's like you know, yin and yang in some ways. Okay. Uh, um, so this was the birth of Adar, and, and literally in the in the first meeting, Nandan basically looked at everybody and said, "We're going to do, you know, fifty crore Adar in five years." He just picked the number, fifty crores in five years, and and this is before anything. There was no organization, no government, nothing, no staffing, you know, no technology, nothing. And everybody looked at him, thinking he must be crazy. <laughs> uh, but um, 
So anyway, so that was the next phase, which uh, which was again I was very lucky to be a part of. You were here as like an unpaid volunteer, or was it yeah, like a job? Unpaid volunteer. Okay, no, no job. Most, most of the people from the tech side were like unpaid volunteers. Yeah, we're all unpaid volunteers. So that okay. was Nandan's genius in like convincing a bunch of people to quit their jobs and become unpaid volunteers for the government. <laughs> the government didn't quite understand. They still right. don't understand. They think, why did you want to do this? You must have some ulterior motive because people don't do that. Right. Um, but uh and and it was difficult because you know the cultures are very difficult uh you know working styles are very different different but i, I did definitely uh, get grounded to india pretty pretty quickly um and uh, and some amazing entrepreneurs came out of this uh, a company called healthify who i sit on the board of they called tushar he started he was uh, he, he was on part of my team uh, so the bunch of very bright people um were all passionate for a cause right uh, so kind of charged up it was like a country building kind of a thing um, but it was definitely for me a very grounding experience of getting out of the bubble and, and traveling to chatisgarh and in you know all kinds of remote places everywhere mm-hmm. right uh, tell and, me about how that uh, how that idea got shaped up in that one year which you spent over there like i spent a couple of years there i spent okay, two okay. years there okay okay um so um there are many many threads here but you know again i was a small part in in a great project so my role was you know i was a volunteer but as help out wherever i can kind of a role mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, the idea was shaped up by by it was a collective effort from extremely dedicated you know ias officers uh, who have never mm-hmm. seen any startups entrepreneur work like that before or after um, who work for nothing and right? you know there's not like they had any personal gain out of this um, and a bunch of very very bright people um, essentially everybody shaped together from you know from the idea of you know should we use fingerprints should we use dna should we use like how do you create a unique id right you know how do you store it how do you you know should it be done by a agency should it be done by a private company who should, who should run it who should manage it how do you develop software right i mean it's just like a everything right you know how do you do rfps hmm. but was it clear that uh, you were building a platform rather than just an id like like this would be something yes you were building a, was building a platform nandan okay crystal clear on the vision of it right and i've never met anybody like him in my life um in terms of his vision in terms of his dedication in terms of his work ethic i mean he would work from 7 am to 7 pm deal with like you know minor from detail minutia of tech issues to policy to home ministry to you know all kinds of stuff right now breath in in launching something like this you know the the it was really like a breathtaking audacity honestly to be able to think that you can go and issue a biometric id electronically mm-hmm. right remember this this 3g had not even come in yet right, right. 3g right. was just coming in mm-hmm. and people thought there will be no network connectivity you know what are you talking about online id you know right and he was like don't worry right we are building for the future right it will come right so it is just amazing the number of strategic decisions tactical decisions the range of decisions that was made so uh, i think that was to me it was a very life changing experience in a lot of ways hmm. uh, also to sort of get reoriented to india because i've been out of india for 20 years at this point hmm. right. Right. right from the days of you know running around and 
doing market research in you know driving around buses and walking around to hmm. you know the new india right the, the whole generation had grown up right, right. post liberalization right hmm. people who didn't know what i was talking about right they couldn't they couldn't relate to anything that i grew up with uh, and still don't. uh but it was different I, i you know i loved it personally i thought it was a much better place to live and grow up than what i had grown up with right, uh, right. really a, it was really a new country in, in a lot of ways and a serious upgrade i would say um so um so it is really fascinating how the next generation thing most of the volunteers are very young they're all like 20 right so um so it was very fascinating how a whole set of people how their assumptions were very different their ambitions were very different um and interacting with all of them basically uh, gave me the thread of uh of wanting to do what what to do next and um so this is where um, my co-founder from snapfish you know the guy i told you about shripati who was uh also my uh one of my close friends he had also moved to india um along with me he was my neighbor he also did the uh, he was also at uid with me hmm. okay uh, okay at adhadar and uh, he and i along with uh, sanjay swami who was also our neighbor we were also volunteering at adhar we came up with the idea of starting a venture capital fund so the fund is now called prime ventures at that time it was called angel prime hmm. okay and uh, so prime today is the largest probably seed fund in india okay about 120 130 million dollars aum um and at that time the idea was um you know we knew that there will be a bunch of exciting startups which would come from india uh but having done startups etc we wanted to sort of be you know somewhat deeply involved not only as investors but also sort of help the entrepreneurs as well we felt that that was the entrepreneurial ecosystem needed and that was the genesis of money tap i uh, sorry uh, genesis Angel of prime right right prime ventures hmm. prime ventures hmm. so um we raised money from a number of silicon valley uh, people including people like jerry yang who had started yahoo okay uh and um so um we did a bunch of companies from 2012 to 2015 hmm. can you um, uh, explain to me uh, how uh, a vc works from the vc's perspective like uh, i believe there's like fund 1 fund 2 fund 3 and all that so right. so how does that happen like you create one fund with a certain objective and a certain money which is in your account or is it like when you want to deploy then that money comes in like how does it work like your uh, question so the way it works is that um, so there are there is something called fund 1 fund 2 etc so the the investment thesis as you call it like who what are you going to invest are you going to invest in technology are you going to invest in in you know in sort of non profits are you going to invest in like clean energy you know you could pick whatever charter it is and that usually doesn't change across funds so you have an idea prime for example is to invest in early stage startups right and be sort of very heavily involved in the growth of the startup hmm. okay right? hmm. uh as opposed to for example invest a little bit of money in a lot of startups hmm. right but not be so involved that's hmm. another thesis hmm. uh, again, there's nothing right or wrong but everybody has to pick a thesis right it's called right. investment thesis hmm. but other than, so that stays across typically across multiple funds but typically you raise fund 1 which is our fund 2 the first fund with a bunch of what they call lps uh, lps are limited partners So these are people who are writing a check. They could be funds, they could be uh, endowments, they could be 
uh, family officers, there could be a number of people, right? So they essentially you write a check, and the money sits in your bank. Okay. Um, okay uh, actually, they should come, they commit to writing a check. Okay, they make a commitment. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it's a pretty strong commitment. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, and then you can call on the commitment, saying, "Hey, you committed. You know, write me a check now." So typically, you you kind of call for every every few months or every six months. Okay. Based on right. opportunities that you identify where you want to invest uh, in. But not like every opportunity. You'll have a little bit of a reserve. But not too much reserve. There's no point having money and sitting in the bank. Yeah, that's generally considered bad practice. right? You call approximately when it's necessary, but not in the last minute. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but do you call, call proportionately from all the LPs or you pick and choose? Okay, let's call from... No, no, no. All the, proportionally from all okay. the LPs. Okay, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, and the money comes to your bank and then you write a check from that company. So that each fund is a company in some ways. You write the money from that company into into the company you want to invest the, in. The fundraise itself is like a sales activity where, where you have to like yes. sell, sell your ability to yeah. identify startups. Yes, exactly correct. Okay. okay. And do you put in your own money also? At like how much of first you, you need? To, you need to put in a small amount of your money. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So. Um. Anyway, so that's how it broadly it works. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and it's fairly established. So this there is no for an industry which is innovation focused. There is no innovation here. This is a very standard formula almost. Right. What you take, what commission you get. All of that is very standard. It's very conservative. They don't change that. Very so, much. what does the, the 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 partners of the VC? What do they get? Like, if they do a good job. So uh, again, this is no secret. It's very common. So the uh, the typical is what they call two and twenty. So if you raise, let's say, a hundred million dollar fund, you get two percent a year in what they call management fees. Okay. Okay. So this is for the salaries you pay the partners and office and any marketing activity you need to do yeah analysts and all that yeah analyst and etc exactly right paying paying your office and all of that so that's usually two percent of the fund okay and 20 percent is what they call carry so carry is let's say you invest 100 million dollars and you get like a jackpot and you know invest in a paytm or something and Hmm. softbank buys you or whatever something you have an ipo or whatever something good happens so let's say the hundred million becomes three hundred million. So so first of all, you have to return the hundred million first. Right. You took out of the remaining two hundred million, you typically get twenty percent. Okay. Hmm. Okay, and that's shared among partners. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Got it. GP, they call it. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so it's fairly standard structure is two hundred twenty hmm. hmm. uh, across the world almost. It might become one percent. If it's a very large fund, it might be one percent, but it's broadly in that range. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what were some of the companies that you were funding? And you know, like uh, any uh, thesis you developed based on uh, those years of investing in companies and seeing what's working yeah. and what's not. Yeah. So we invested in a number of companies. Um, so there was a company. There's a company called EasyTap, which is in a payment company. Um, company called uh, Happy, which is also into fintech. Uh, it's a company called uh, Nimble, which is now called Wago. Uh, there are a number of co- companies. In the very first fund, we didn't. Um, the world was always moving towards fintech, so there was like a little bit of a waiting on fintech. Um, 
And uh, that was sort of what got me interested in fintech. Um, in looking at this, um, I was very intrigued by what was happening in, in, in the finance industry. Uh, so after two, three years in the fund, um, I sort of felt that there was a very big opportunity in fintech. Right? And uh, so after the fund won, I left the fund. Right, so I'm not not a partner in Fund Two, for example. Okay, okay. Um, and I started MoneyTap. Okay, so MoneyTap is a, the next phase of the journey. Hmm. Uh, again, sort of somewhat very unusual thing to do because, um, you know, if you are, I mean, I was close to fifty at that time, forty nine. Hmm. Hmm. You don't start a company, and when you don't need to. Right. Right. It's not like a you know drive to make money or whatever. Hmm. Hmm. Um, it was, uh, and 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 this fund itself was doing really well. Hmm. Uh, Prime was doing really well. I, I was with my best friends, right? It was it was really good setup. Um, but I sort of felt like I had like one more adventure left in my career. Okay, okay. Hmm. Um, and and this opportunity, it seemed like a interesting opportunity. Um, so. Um, but I also sort of knew that, you know, given my co-founder experience in the past, et cetera, that I needed to have the right set of founders because this was going to be a long-term play. Okay. Right? It was going to be like a 10, 20-year kind of a play. Okay. So, um, so luckily for me, I met uh, Kunal and Anuj, uh, two co-founders, hmm. who had just exited a company. And I was sitting on the board of one of, uh, of Anuj's uh, brother's company. Okay. Um, so I had some idea about what who they were and what they were doing, uh, and um, they were um, really smart guys. And I had sort of a, a basis of an idea about about what what is now Money Tap, hmm. but it was not fully formed yet. Hmm. Hmm. And um, and we had not started a company or anything. Hmm. But um, I told my partners at Prime that I'm leaving hmm. to start this. Um, of course, uh, they want to fund it. They're still a they're still a big investor in in Money Tap. Okay. Um, so that's how sort of the next chapter started, which is basically Money Tap. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So Money what Tap. Was the original idea that you had in your mind. Yeah. So the original idea is uh, is pretty close to the, the, the idea that we still have right now. Um, is basically um, I'd done a whole bunch of because from my other days. Uh, I'd done a bunch of studies and I was like looking at a bunch of data. Uh, a few things were very clear. Obviously, the you know in 2015 when we incorporated the company, you know, uh, geo we knew was coming at some point of time, right? With the, with the high bandwidth, so network speed and all, we knew that would not be an issue. Uh, and if you recall, in 2013, it was a major issue, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Like you know. We were having edge network and 3G and it was expensive and it was slow and nobody had broadband at home. And it was like, the world was not there, but because in my time in Aadhaar, I'd gotten to meet a number of these, you know, the CEO of Airtel, a number of people like that, right? We knew what the plans were. Like they were, you know, laying fiber everywhere in the country. So even though today your life kind of was bad, we knew that this will change. Right? So much fiber is being laid, you know, that this will change. Right? Plus, Already the other countries had gotten there. And so we knew that we would have not those issues. Um, but we did know. So with that, and also the credit bureaus were becoming very stronger. So I had met some of them as well. 
Okay. Right? So we knew that we could use data. Hmm. And we knew that credit card was underpenetrated in India severely. Right? At that time, there were like some 20 million credit cards in India, 20 million maybe. Yeah, even fewer people using credit cards. The credit card interest rates were exorbitant, still are exorbitant. Right. So the idea was that, and but yet credit card is the most popular product in the world financially by by like a mile, right? Mm-hmm. If you go around the world and say, what is the most successful consumer product, financial product? It's a credit card, like, like hands down, right? It's, it's ecosystem, giant companies have been built on it, right? From Visa right. and MasterCard to everybody else. But in India, it didn't make sense that it was poorly penetrated. So we knew that there'll be a mobile version of a credit card of some sort, right? We knew UPI was coming because again, the connection with Aadhaar and everything. So we knew it was coming, right? We know it will come like, you know, six months later or 12 months later, but we knew it will come like in the next three years, right? It was like that. Um, And we knew bandwidth would be very available. But other than that, it's not like I had some proprietary knowledge of UPI or something, right? It's not like I had, those are all open public, whatever everybody else knew, I also knew. But we knew that these trends were like in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was to provide sort of flexible credit to consumers. Okay, That was the idea. Because mm-hmm. that's what a credit card does. It provides yeah. like a flexible credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kunal, Anuj and I, we interviewed probably about 1,000 customers before incorporating the company. Right? We would stand in bus stops and malls and talk to people, right? go to textile factories and, bunch of things, and say, well, what do you want? And out of that came the idea that on an app, if you can fairly easily uh, evaluate somebody for credit, uh, and then if you give a line of credit, right, which is kind of a credit limit that you could use very flexibly, you could use borrow for three months or you could borrow for three years, you could pay in EMIs, you could borrow 5,000 rupees or you could borrow 50,000 rupees. Or you could, right? As long as we could provide some reasonable interest rate, very flexible. You could use it like a, a swipe in a card in, in a in a machine, or you could use it as cash, right? So, or you could use it as UPI later on that came later, right? As long as you got flexible ways of spending money, flexible ways of borrowing money, and flexibility in repaying, right? Uh, for a small ticket, not like five lakhs or ten lakhs, but like average. Our average today is about one lakh. Okay. Credit limit. Hmm. And within that, people borrow like 10,000, 50,000, 20,000. Average borrowing disbursal is about 30,000. Hmm. So that's how money tap works. It's an app. You can download it. Hmm. Available in like eight languages. And um, once you get qualified for a limit, hmm. then you don't need to use it if you don't want it hmm. to borrow money. But whenever you want, you press a button and the money is there in your bank account okay. immediately. Hmm. 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 That's the idea. Okay. So the idea, it's... Um, uh, and, and 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 very fortunately for us, we met some really bright bankers. We met RBL Bank, which is a terrific bank, uh, banking partner. Because you need Indian financials, you need a bank as well to back you up. Right, right. Hmm. Right. And we met one of the probably, I, I would say, to even today, one of the best bankers I've ever met in my life hmm. uh, at RBL Bank. Hmm. RBL uh, also yeah. works with a lot of startups, fintech startups. I think Happy also a lot with of RBL. Hmm. Uh, RBL is very innovative from that point of view. Hmm. Uh, so again, we were sort of lucky to meet them uh, and especially meet one of the best brains and uh, and some of the idea ideation gelling came from them as well. Right? So which also validated saying that it's real, right? Because we didn't know anything about 
the finance industry. None of us are from the industry, hmm. right? We're not banking this. So it's kind of a marriage between banking and and tech. Hmm. And to this day, we are probably one of the most successful partners for RBL in okay. terms of startup. Okay. And we show up in their annual reports. And, okay. Right? Okay. So we have excellent relationship with them even now after five years. Uh, very hard to make a work with a bank also. It's not easy for a startup to work with a bank, right? Right. Very different country. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so five years out, of, so we launched the product about four years ago. Hmm. Um, the product is obviously a huge success. We have disbursed more than half a billion dollars of of money, of loans. Okay. And like, uh, how, is this your own money or do you like... Uh... Uh, further uh, pass on the leads to various banks or like how do, how do you disperse this money? So we don't pass on the leads. Um, we um, It's not our money. Uh, we, we manage the customer experience but the loans agreement is signed with the, we are the enablers. Okay. Yeah. The loan agreement is signed with the bank or the NBFC. Um, now we have our own NBFC license as well. So, okay. So now we also lend some of our money. Right? Okay. Okay. So depending on the, the algorithm will determine who who's the lender. Only been RBL till now, right? Or or no, you... yeah, RBL is a major bank lender, but you have a number of people now, number of NBFCs, etc. Okay. Okay. So each NBFC has a certain risk profile basis which uh, correct. That is correct. you match them with the customer. Okay. Effectively, right. Yeah. But but so once a customer is matched to an NBFC, then uh, that customer, whether he takes another fifty thousand or pays back, or that whole relationship is with that NBFC in terms of the l- credit limit increasing, going down, and all that. Except it happens through your app. It happens through our app. We are the conduit. Hmm. They are the they are the legal entity. Hmm. Okay. 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 Yeah, we're just the enablers and the conduits. Okay. So, how did you uh, when you launched it initially? How did you do the customer acquisition? I mean. Uh, the the supply side obviously you found RBL as one major partner and which you grew with other NBFC partners. But what about the demand side? Like you know, how did you get customers to download and uh, apply for a credit limit? So that turned out to be not that difficult a problem because by the time you know people were already happy downloading apps and you know thanks to Ola and Swiggy and everybody else had done the hard work of educating customers, right, to go online and download an app. Uh, so a lot of that happens digitally. We have partnerships as well. We tie up with some merchants now. So now we've expanded, right? We work with educational institutions, uh, right? So we, we work with a number of players to now, but originally it was basically, uh, you know, people hearing about us through press, people hearing about us through, you know, digital advertising and so on and so forth. Google. So on. Okay. 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 And uh, what is the onboarding process like? Like, how uh, how much time does it take to get an approved credit line and stuff like that? So um, it's a it's a two step process. So the first step is pretty fast. It takes a couple of minutes. Hmm. Um, essentially, uh, we do a uh, we get a bunch of data and we quickly say yes or no. Uh, the second step, uh, the customer uh, cooperates because we need to do the KYC, right? It's all regulated. So um, so RBI regulations change from time to time, but. But fundamentally, there is some form of KYC that needs to be done. Right. Uh, and sometimes we have to, uh, they want you to go in face-to-face and meet the customer and get a signature. Uh, sometimes you can do it electronically. So it depends on the customer and depends on the banking institution. Hmm. Right? Okay. Okay. What they want. 
Uh, RBL, for example, will do a biometric KYC. They'll come to your house with a tablet and get okay. your fingerprint. Okay. Right. Okay. Sometimes we can do OKYC on a thing. So you know, this changes all the time. This KYC is like a, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's uh, they, they used to be eKYC and then they, they stopped. This changes all the time, but whatever the regulation is, we comply with it, obviously. Um, but once you get a credit line after the KYC, so you get pre-approved using your credit. So we evaluate you for credit, then there is compliance, right? But once that is done, then you get a limit. Then um, we pretty much never see you again, right? So it's all electronic. Hmm. Okay. okay. And at that time, whenever you want the money, you press a button, money comes to you. End of the month, you get a bill, you pay the bill, okay. right? Okay. Like auto debit or whatever, you know, hmm. ACS hmm. mandate and you know, the number of ways to repay. Okay. And uh, like, what about customers about whom you may not have data? Like what happens there? Like if a person has never taken credit before, then maybe the credit bureau won't have a, like a score for that person. Yeah. So um, our customer segment um is people between typically between 25 and 40 uh, our customer segment right so for example we don't lend to students hmm, right uh, right and, and typically today we don't lend to like sort of complete blue collar right hmm, hmm, hmm. because there's no data about them where there's no data hmm. we do a small piece to them just as an experimental we are constantly trying stuff okay um, but typically you need some data hmm. um even if it's not credit bureau data, we can get bank statements, for example. Right? You need some digital footprint. Anything digital, we'll take it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? But you're completely off the grid, mm-hmm. then we'll probably reject you. Okay. Okay. So a bank statement would then be like a manual upload uh, process? Like no, it's your... usually electronic, so you can either give a net banking or you can do a PDF upload or whatever. Okay. And uh, how, how has the growth been? Like from 2015, like how many users signed up for it and like you know uh, how, how did that uh, curve uh, grow yeah um it's been pretty uh, pretty phenomenal um forbes has written articles i just forward you hmm. um with a bunch of stats there hmm. okay. um, um but um uh, we've had basically a, a, a phenomenal growth they're probably the number one in the country right now in terms of fintech um uh, in, in this category um and um and so the growth has been uh, we've been lucky of course but you know you we probably um uh, you know we, we we've disbursed about probably 5 600 million dollars as i said hmm. we have our 5 million applicants um hmm. we've done about 150000 credit cards right we've okay. probably disbursed you know probably close to you know 10 lakh loans Hmm. You you have a credit card uh, also now, also okay. So the the, the business is uh, you know we don't we are neutral whether you use a card or a how you take the money out. Okay. Right? We just okay. give you the flexibility. Okay. And what is typically the interest rate that uh, the it, users pay? It varies except usually by the lender. Hmm. Uh, it varies from thirteen percent to thirty percent. Okay. So, but much cheaper than a traditional credit card. A credit card is 42%. So right, we're right. Definitely cheaper. What that. next for you? Like, you know, uh, are you looking at this for the next decade or so? Or uh, do you think you will take on more of an advisory role and uh, go back to being a VC or, you know, uh, w- what's in your mind? 
Um, good question. Uh, uh, money tap is sort of the the end point at this point. Um, uh, I, I am on the boards of some companies, um, some of my investing companies, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, money tap is the is, is the end at this point. So if you are as inspired by the MoneyTap story as we are, then download the MoneyTap app or just head to moneytap.com and maybe even apply for a loan while you're there. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books and drama. visit the podium.in that is t h e p o d i u n .in for a complete list of all our shows